1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and beginning at verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not to be passionate like, uh, I can't read, uh, lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or rape, take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just pray together as we uh, look at God's word. Lord, we thank you so much for your living word. Please feed us this morning by your spirit as we come hungry to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You need to hover over the PowerPoint, Mateo. Uh, As we continue our series in um, 1 Thessalonians, great, fantastic, um, we're looking at chapter 4. So you might want to keep your Bibles open if that's helpful to you um, as we look at this passage t- t- together. But I wonder, how do, would you describe your lifestyle? Perhaps you've reached the magic number 65 and have a retired lifestyle. So in theory, you've got time on your hands. Although most people I know that are retired seem to have very little time, very little free time. Or perhaps you're pursuing a healthy lifestyle, up at the crack of dawn for a 10-mile run, just like Matthias is. I saw him yesterday morning. Just enough time to get back to home to grab a kale and spinach smoothie before you head off for work. Or perhaps you're shopping around, looking for a lifestyle to suit you. Because there are numerous magazines and courses and gurus who can guide you into what they think is the best lifestyle. But is there such a thing as a Christian lifestyle? The dictionary defines um, a lifestyle as someone's way of living, the things that a particular person or group of people usually do. And when people look um, for a lifestyle, they're usually seeking for one that helps them deal with the big issues in life. Issues like death, like sex, like work. And it may surprise you that actually the Bible speaks deeply and practically about these lifestyle issues. So what does a Christian lifestyle look like? Well, a Christian lifestyle is rooted fundamentally 
in a relationship, a relationship with Jesus. That's the starting point, a personal encounter with him. And that's why we've got this quote up here. The Christian life is a life that consists of following Jesus. That's what a Christian lifestyle is all about. And in these verses in Thessalonians, uh, the writer of the letter talks about what it means to live the Christian life. And in the, in the verses, it says there are four main things. A Christian lifestyle aims to please God. A Christian lifestyle aim, seeks to be holy. A Christian lifestyle manifests love. And a Christian lifestyle embraces work. So let's begin by considering how a Christian lifestyle aims to please God. In verse 1 it says, as for, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus, do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. What do you think about pleasing God? Here, Paul, one of the writers of this letter, um, instructs the early, early believers how to live in order to please God. Now, if you had parents um, who were never pleased with you, no matter how you tried, or if your teachers at school were never happy with the work you produce, then you may react negatively to the suggestion that we should aim to please God. Because deep down, you fear that you will never be able to please anyone, let alone God. And the idea of pleasing God concerns other people for a different reason. It may be that you understand the Christian message is not really about pleasing God, and in one sense you're right. In terms of us getting right with God, we can never do enough to reach his perfect standard or to earn his forgiveness. It's only as we put our faith in Jesus when we accept that he died in our place, that he took our punishment and paid for our selfishness by his death, that we can be considered to be a child of God. But in these verses, Paul is not talking about earning forgiveness by pleasing God. So then why should we try and please God? Well, if you look in, in, in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 29, it says Jesus is talking about his Father, and he says, I always do what pleases him. So if pleasing the Father was a top priority for Jesus, then surely it must be for us as well. The Bible often describes the Christian life as like a walk. It carries that idea of, of making steady progress, a series of steps going in the right direction. It's a steady and a consistent journey. And that's what our Christian lifestyle should be like. And Paul has some encouragement here because he says, in fact, you guys, you're already doing this. But then he says, now we urge you to do this more and more. See, pleasing God isn't just an optional extra. It's an essential part of us being a Christian. And these verses give, give us a really simple and a powerful principle to live by. Live to please God. And that's something for us to take away this week in our daily lives, on our front lines. Do we please God by the way we deal with our customers? Do we please God by the way we talk to our students or our children? Do we please God by the way we provide financial advice? Do we please God with the way we talk to our neighbours, our spouses, even our friends? Wherever our front line is, we can ask this question, am I living my life to please God?
A simple but powerful principle to live by, living like Jesus did to please the Father. But to stop us thinking it's all about our own effort, Paul urges us to do this in God's strength. That's why in the second part of verse 1 it says, Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. It is Christ's strength in us that enables us to live in this way. And Paul is saying, you've been instructed how to live in order to please God. You've been doing it, so now do it more and more. As Christians, we never stand still. We're always striving to to live our life to please God. So, that raises a question. Am I leading my life at this moment in a way which is pleasing to God? Next, Paul tells them that a Christian lifestyle uh, seeks to be holy. Let's read from verse 8. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God. The word sanctified, of course, is another word for holy. I don't know what image comes into your mind when you hear the word holy. We tend to have a bit of a negative image, don't we, when we talk about holiness. But what does it really mean to be holy? One writer and preacher called Tom Wright points us to the Old Testament um, and to the temple. And he says, you know, when the Jews wanted to go into the temple in the Old Testament times to be in God's presence, then you had to be holy. So there were certain purification rites that you had to follow to ensure that you could go into God's presence. And in a sense, this applies to us today. God is still holy. He's not changed. And we need to think about how we come into his presence. But the New Testament says the way we can prepare ourselves has changed. As we put our trust in Jesus, he purifies us from all our sins. And his purification isn't just an external washing of hands or feet. It's a purification of our hearts, of our minds, of our thoughts. So we can come into God's presence because of Jesus. But the Bible also describes our bodies as a temple and the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And it says that that temple should remain holy. Listen to the words that Paul writes to another church, a church in Corinth. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. So the main area in these verses of teaching is sex. And first of all, Paul says to them that they should avoid sexual immorality. Now we need to remember the context in which Paul is writing these words. At that particular time, you may say things haven't changed, but it was a man's world, a world where self-gratification was the top priority. It was all about getting your sexual needs met. So it was quite okay to have a wife, to look after the house and raise the kids, but it was also okay to have a mistress. And it was also okay to go and visit the temple prostitutes. But these new Christians in this place, in Thessalonica, were being taught that this was not how God wanted his children to live. They were to lead holy lives. So in in addition to saying that sex is just for within marriage, Paul's saying you need to learn to control your own bodies. 
The fact that marriage is, is a God-given context for sex does not then mean that within marriage there's no need for restraint. Marriage isn't some form of legalized lust. Either partner cannot just behave just as they like to meet their own sexual needs. There must be honor, there must be respect within marriage. In fact, there are very strong words for those who take advantage of either marriage partner or someone else in the church family. In recent years, we've become much more aware of safeguarding and um, it's good that in the church we're also aware of safeguarding and we have very strict protocols which we follow in the church um, so that if we believe that anybody's taking advantage of somebody, then we have a process and a procedure which we follow. Look in verse 6, it says, No one should wrong or take advantage of a brother and sister. This is safeguarding. Then it says, The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. You see, sometimes things don't come to light. Sometimes we don't know what's happening. But you see, God knows what goes on in secret. And even if domestic violence doesn't get reported, God still sees it. He hates exploitation of any form. And although there may be no redress in a human law court, there will be when we face God as our judge. God's purpose in our relationships, in our marriages, and in our relationships with each other in church is that we honour and respect one another. I was reading um, an article in the Sunday Times recently, and the journalist was referring to the allegations around Harvey Weinstein back in October last year. You may remember hearing about them, and they're still current. And, and then the string of other male celebrities who were accused of abusive behaviour. And the journalist who's writing this article describes how he rejected faith. He'd held to the Christian faith a number of years ago, but he just he'd rejected it. And he says how he'd actually been left with a moral vacuum. He says, I never constructed a post-faith morality. I think what he means is he's saying he rejected Christianity, but then he never found anything else to really replace it. He's not, he's not saying let's go back to, to, to Christian faith, sadly, but he recognizes that we all do need a code to live by. He says every man must have a code. And he says it feels really strange to be using the old-fashioned language of morality. But he recognizes there's nothing to replace what's been thrown away. But as Christians, don't we have a message to share which can transform the way we live? We shouldn't be afraid to present that to a world that may have rejected it and has got nothing to replace it with. Paul ends his argument by saying, therefore, anyone who rejects his instructions, this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you the Holy Spirit. So to reject this teaching is to reject God and to reject the Holy Spirit who enables us to live holy lives, enables us to live the way that God wants us to live. Next, a Christian lifestyle seeks to be holy, verses 9 and 10. This is what he, Paul says. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. So first of all, Paul commends them for their loving lifestyle, a love that looks out for other people's interests, not just their own. And he says you've been taught by God to love each other. Because God's love is a self-giving love. 
It's been supremely seen in Jesus, a man who came to give all that he had, and he was. And the more we're captured by this love that Jesus showed to us, the more we will become like him. And we can never be self-satisfied. We can never say we've arrived. Just as we are called to please God more and more, once more Paul says that they are loving each other, but they need to do it more and more. The next lifestyle principle that Paul gives us is a Christian lifestyle embraces work in verses 11 and 12. It seems that in the church in Thessalonica, there were people who decided that they didn't need to work. What was the point of working if Jesus was coming back? So they used Jesus' promise that he would return as a reason to be lazy and not work. So these verses aren't addressed to people who are sick and can't work. They are about those who are fit to work, but use spiritual reasons to be lazy and avoid contributing to society and supporting themselves and others. So what do these verses teach us about the world of work, particularly as we think about our front lines? Look in verse 11. It says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. When this letter was written, people generally looked down upon those who worked with their hands. But here, Paul, the writer, gives dignity to manual work. Because you see, Paul himself, as well as being this preacher-teacher guy, he was also working to support himself. He was making, making tents, using his hands to stitch tents. And he says that we should work quietly and mind our own business. The idea that we work hard, not just when someone's looking, but working even when our manager's not around. That we work hard all the time. In another part of the Bible, it says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. That puts a whole new perspective, doesn't it, on our work as Christians. So if you're, if you're in a difficult work situation, remember what the Bible says. Work as if you are working for the Lord. But the Bible doesn't just present the workplace as a place of witness or even a means, a place as, uh, to, to earn money. The Bible gives work dignity. It's a good thing to do. In fact, it's a form of worship. And what are the benefits of such a lifestyle? Well, we won't be dependent on others and we will win the respect of others by our attitude in the way we work. So how can we live in this way? I love this quote from the message, um, and it's um, from the letter that Timothy wrote. And actually, if you look at the beginning of this letter, you'll see the letter's actually not just from Paul, it's from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Look in chapter 1, verse 1. And Timothy writes, takes up the same theme when he writes um, a letter to another church, and, and he uses a very everyday illustration to illustrate what he's talking about. And he says, in a well-furnished kitchen, there are not only crystal goblets and silver platters, but waste cans and compost buckets. Some containers used to serve fine meals, others to take out the garbage. Become the kind of container God can use to present any and every kind of gift to his guests for, that, for their blessing. 
wonderful words, aren't they? And a great translation of that verse. That God actually, if we, if we give our lives to him, he can take our lives and actually make them a blessing to other people. So let's just pause for a moment and let's just come before the Lord. And if you want to just recommit your life to God this morning, then I invite you to do that. Lord, you call us to live holy lives. And we confess, Lord, in our own strength, we just can't do that. We mess up all the time. But thank you for your Holy Spirit who fills our lives and enables us to live the Jesus way. And Lord, this morning we want to present ourselves as containers for you, to be used for your good purposes, to use be, to be used as gifts to guests who may come in this place, or people we might meet in our, in our everyday lives, or people that might be just wondering about who you are. Help us, Lord, to be open books that show the love and the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus. So please, Lord, take our lives. Use us for your glory, we pray. Amen. <laughs>